Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Barton. When Chinese people go to the cinema, they like to be impressed by a big budget treat packed with drama and action. War films and adventure movies are particularly popular, although there's also a taste for gentle comedy, often with a romantic twist. Few of these films seek to portray an accurate picture of what daily life is like for most people in China. Yet, to an expert eye, they can reveal a lot about Chinese society and politics. And I'm pleased to say that we have one such expert with us today on China in Context. Dr. Xiaoning Lu is a specialist in cinema and cultural studies at the SOAS China Institute, and she's here to talk about some of the recent box office hits in China. Xiaoning, I'd like to start by talking about war films. In particular, I'd like to talk about a film called Wolf Warrior. Now that's a title that I think many people will know because the term Wolf Warrior has come to be applied to a kind of unapologetic form of patriotism. Um, and that's sometimes characteristic of Chinese representatives at diplomatic events. Can you tell us a little bit more about the film and the concept of the Wolf Warrior? Uh, actually, we are talking about Wolf Warrior 2 uh, as a big blockbuster film. The Wolf Warrior is the name for a fictional Chinese special operative force, but it also refers to the protagonist of this film, Lem Feng. So Lem Feng is a former Wolf Warrior squad member. He travels to an unnamed African country in searching of his missing fiancée. So the climax of the film really comes uh, toward the end of the movie. There is a vehicle convoy driving through a war zone. Standing atop the first vehicle, Lin Feng furs China's national flag, and this ensures all the passengers to safely travel through this war zone. Um, at the end of the film, there is a big close-up shot of the Chinese passport, printed on the Chinese passport, citizens of the PRC. When you encounter danger in a foreign land, do not give up. Please remember, at your back stands a strong motherland. So the film has been promoted uh, across China and attracted many, many audiences. Uh, the film was also promoted by, uh, by the tagline, uh, anyone who offends China will be killed, no matter how far the target is. Um, so the film is really unique in the sense, it is the very first of cultural production that matches China's recent global policy. And as you mentioned already, the wolf warrior later is associated or is applied into different fields. For example, we have this so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, which emphasizes China's aggressive, proactive stance in international affairs. But depending on your perspective, for most of the Chinese audience, wolf warrior policy emphasizes Chinese people's assertiveness. Well, thank you for drawing the parallels between the drama and the politics there. Looking at some of the films which have been successful at the box office in China in 2021, I can see that several war films have done well. Um, and it seems as though in these films, the Chinese soldiers 
always emerge victorious, even if the stories are based on historical events which actually didn't go so well for China. So I'm assuming that audiences want to see the Chinese soldiers as glorious heroes. Uh, I think there are a number of questions here. Uh, the first one is what type of films are most suitable to be screened in big movie theaters? And the second is what kind of films were allowed to be produced at this historical conjuncture? Uh, what kind of stories do they want to tell and what kind of narratives they can construct? Um, so if we look at the film productions in last year, 2020 and this year, uh, of course, there are quite a number of war films. 2021 is also the centennial of the Chinese Communist Party. So if we look at this group of war films, I think they continue the so-called soft propaganda tradition that started in 2009, 2011, uh, when filmmakers made films such as the founding of the Republic, etc. And all these war films contributed to a historical narrative of Chinese past. What's your view of the China Film Administration? China Film Administration is an organization that takes care of many aspects of a film, uh, including distribution, exhibition, etc. For most people, when they think about China Film Administration, they think about a censorship. But this is only one aspect of this organization or bureau. China Film Administration deals with very mundane matters. Uh, for instance, in its many regulations, uh, sometimes it dictates how long a scene of smoking can be in, in a film because they don't want to promote smoking. And they also dictate anybody who works for the Bureau should not have their name listed in the credits. Um, but of course, it also imposed content control. So this is the aspect I think most people are interested in. But then in terms of how the censorship works, it is always opaque and um, mystifying. Sometimes a film gets censored, not because of its political content, but because it doesn't follow proper procedural. Of course, sensitive political issues related to Tiananmen Square incident, um, sensitive issues related to sexuality, uh, explicit depiction of sexuality or homosexuality, those contents will be censored. Uh, a few years ago, when director An Li's film, Last Caution, was screened in mainland China, the mainland Chinese version had to delete seven minutes sex scene uh, because it's too explicit. So often you have different versions of film screened in probably in Hong Kong and in mainland China. I wanted to talk to you a bit about Hong Kong, actually, because in Hong Kong, the cinema industry is now obliged to follow rules that are set down through the national security law. Many people interpret that as a move to prevent criticism of the government, actually, either in dramas or documentaries. What's your interpretation of how things in the film industry are developing in Hong Kong? Uh, Hong Kong film industry was already in decline 
at the end of the 1990s. From the early 2000s, some Hong Kong film directors moved north. Many of them were involved in the so-called Hong Kong mainland co-productions, uh, including Chi Hark and Dante Lam. Those are talented action film directors. We see recently they got involved in big production of war film. So you just asked me about the, the popular Chinese war film. So we see the Hong Kong directors, they transfer their talent, they transfer their skills, or they uh, found all op new opportunities to, uh, to exhibit their talents and to, to adapt to the new market situation. And somehow they managed to preserve some of the Hong Kong film traditions work method in their co-production projects. Uh, of course, the national security law, this is a move further integrates Hong Kong cinema into um, the so-called Chinese cinema. For local Hong Kong filmmakers, the imposition of the national security law has a quite big psychological impact. Uh, I think this move really limits uh, the people's freedom of uh, speech in Hong Kong. Uh, it will really have a big impact on the kind of films Hong Kong local Hong Kong filmmakers can make. And also it imposed restrictions of exhibiting certain type of films. A few years ago, there was a Hong Kong film called 10 Years. It won a big award at the Hong Kong uh, Film Festival. The film depicts a dystopia uh, picture of uh, Hong Kong society after it was um, completely absorbed into mainland China. Uh, I imagine in the near future, these type of films will not be allowed to be produced and uh, exhibited. But on the other hand, I think this is this is an effort by the, the Chinese government to further integrate Hong Kong into China. Uh, so the Hong Kong filmmakers will face the same conundrum and the problems that Chinese filmmakers have been dealing with for many, many years. Finally, let me ask you something about art here, because it seems to me as though the Chinese are now really missing out on some aspects of contemporary cinema. I'm thinking about those wistful artistic films that do well at film festivals. I mean, we have this phrase, don't we? Art house cinema. We don't seem to get many of those films from China these days. I think it's really uh, a matter of uh, how we introduce those art film into the Western world. Uh, in China, there is a quite vibrant art film sector and, uh, and also it's a niche audience. In recent years, we have a wonderful festival based in China. It's called the First International Film Festival. In Chinese, it's First Qingnian Dianying Zhan. The festival is dedicated to exhibiting, promoting the first feature or the first film by emerging filmmakers uh, and their early works. There are not a number of films excellent art film emerged in this film festival. For instance, uh, The Coffin in the Mountain uh, in 2014, and uh, also um, 
the summer is gone, or in Chinese, 八月, by Zhang Dalei. This 2016 film later won the Golden Horse Awards. There are young directors who make very artistic documentaries, and they also experiment with different genres. But those films normally are not introduced into uh, the Western market, and that's also a problem. Well, thank you very much indeed for that overview of Chinese cinema. That was Dr. Xiaoning Liu, Reader in Modern Chinese Culture and Language at SOAS, University of London. This podcast is produced by SOAS, and you can find out more about our courses and events on our website, soas.ac.uk. But until next time, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.